Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Irish Examiner podcast series on the Civil War. This year, 2022, of course, is the centenary of the Irish Civil War, which brought to an end a turbulent near decade of conflict that started with Easter 1916 and culminated in the birth of the state and the dispute over the Anglo-Irish Treaty signed in December 1921. In this series, we're examining various aspects of the war, which was characterised as pitting brother against brother and which unfortunately at times descended into a form of depravity with all sorts of atrocities that left a bitter legacy. Today we're talking about a giant of the times, the man described far and wide as the lost leader, Michael Collins. At the time of his death in Bailnabla in West Cork on August 22nd, 1922, Collins was, I would suggest, far and away the most dominant figure on the Free State side of the Civil War. He was head of the Provisional Government and Commander-in-Chief of the Army, a breath of responsibility that now seems perhaps unwise. Anyway, his death changed practically everything in the conflict, and we can only speculate as to whether the Civil War would have plumbed the depths it did if he had lived. But what of his life and his actual legacy? I'm delighted to be joined today to discuss the big fella with UCC lecturer and historian Gabriel Doherty. Gabriel, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Gabriel, just to run through very quickly, and it's very thing, a lot of time, but very quickly, the first chunk of, of, of Colin's backstory. Born outside Clonakilty, I think he was a late addition to his family. He grew up there, immigrated to London, where he worked in the post office, and he got involved in the IRB. He came home for the 1916 Rising and served as Plunkett's aide de camp in the GPO. He was detained in England and Wales and Frognock mainly in the aftermath. And then he returned to Ireland December 16, full of ideas about how to take on the British. So far, so... That's, that, yeah, yeah, that's about it. Grand. Okay, Gabriel, so the thing then is, when and where did his potential as a leader and quite obviously a figure of high intelligence become obvious to those around him? Because we're talking now, the man was still in his late 20s just at that stage. I mean, I suppose in the build-up to the 1916 Rising, he wasn't in Ireland long before being made aide-de-camp to one of the signatories. So that in itself was testimony to, to his ability and, and the judgment of, of those signatories as to, to, the, to the fact that he was very, very capable. When he was interned in Frangach, he became one of the camp leaders. And again, uh, he demonstrates all the qualities needed for a leader. But to me, I think that the, the point at which he starts to make a really concrete contribution to the independent struggle and uh, the point at which his administrative abilities, which are so important, really came to the fore, was his time when he was in charge, in effect, of the finances. He was secretary to the, the Prisoner Dependence Fund. Uh, and it's in, in that guise in 1917 uh, where he has to go around the country, meet all the families, meet uh, where some of those prisoners are still, uh, the family members are still in prison. He has to make judgments as to their need and, and so on and so forth. But much more importantly, he can form an impression of, of the strength, the support network that was in place uh, at individual levels and, and, and in locales, as, as it were, uh, for the prisoners and for the struggle that they were supporting. He was noted even at that time for his scrupulous uh, conduct when it came to finances to make sure that no money was siphoned off for personal benefit. Uh, and and just the, the probity of his conduct, the energy he displayed in, in making sure that the money went to the right people. Uh, and, and his just general demeanour marked him out at that point as somebody who was going to go far. Yeah, and we're talking, like as I said, December 16, so you, you've, okay, it's another the guts of three years, really, before the, the War of Independence starts. But he's, he's not somebody who's been around a long time. Like, he was in London prior to that. Was, and yes. yet, and I suppose that thing with the prisoner funds was a great way of making contacts, apart from assessing everything else. Absolutely. And, and I suppose his background in the post office, and, and he'd branched out a little bit even when he was London into some of the sort of broader aspects of finance, associated with stockbroking firms. Um, and, of course, 
money drives revolutions. Uh, sort of uh, maybe the root of all evil, but uh, uh, you try and organize a revolution without it. Uh, so somebody who knew how to both raise money uh, to make sure that those funds weren't going to be detected by the British and to make sure that the money raised was going to go to the right ends. I mean, that, that was very, very important. And then following the election, it was December 18, yeah. you, you have the provisional government set up. Was, was he an obvious choice? Well, he, he, you have the Doyle cabinet. In December 1918. So he, even though, of course, it takes some time after the election for the full uh, door arrangements to be put in place because you still have people like De Valera in prison. Uh, but of course, one of the first things that Collins does is to, to get De Valera out of prison uh, and uh, as a jailbreak. Uh, that was in Link- Lincoln, was Lincoln Jail in England, England yeah. So he, uh, so once once everybody is in situ, uh, his his main role or his his Doyle function was that of Minister for Finance, uh, and of course that meant that he had all the levers of of power. That anybody who wanted to spend anything uh, had to go through him. Uh, so it gave him an input into all government departments, and to a certain extent, it allows him to use his, his judgment as to where the money should go. Simultaneously with that, he's also officially director of intelligence for the Irish Volunteers, and of course, this gives him an in- insight into many different things: the intelligence gathering capability of collectively and individual of the Volunteers, and also uh, the state of play within the British administration, both political. Uh, and military. But beyond those nominal roles, uh, which were more than nominal, I mean, they, they were very, very real, uh, his drive in his industry, in effect, marks him out uh, as a figure of rare abilities within both the, volu- both the civil and the political. So it's, uh, that, that sense of having a foot in both camps, um, a, 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 an individual who, by virtue of his pedigree and his upbringing, was seen to be a reliable Fenian, uh, and somebody who was himself very, very high up by this stage in uh, the IRB, Thomas Ash, the the, for, the, the, the former uh, head of the IRB, of course, having died on hunger strike in 1917, gives him a position of, of tremendous strength, especially because de Valera, who in 1917 technically had taken over the leadership of both Sinn Féin and the Volunteers, was for the guts of 18 months or so uh, in the United States. How important are central or controversial was Collins' role in the IRB because it was that secret society within the wider Republican movement? It, it was very controversial. The whole idea behind creating Dolaren was that there was no longer any need for these type of underground organisations. Indeed, some people like De Valera and Carl Brewer uh, had argued that once the volunteers were, were founded and once Sinn Féin had moved in as a Republican direction by changing its constitution, even before the election of 1918 and the creation of the Dáil, or for sitting of the Dáil on the 21st of January 1919, the IRB had run its course. And they argued that it created, as it were, a dangerous duality uh, because the, the leadership of the IRB regarded itself as, in effect, the de facto government of the Republic in being. But when you create the Dáil and the Dáil uh, administration, the Dáil executive, um, which, of course, is composed of individuals, some of whom have an IRB background, some of whom don't. So, was Collins head of the IRB? He's basically head of the IRB. So, yes, this oh, so I really got you a scenario whereby you had, you had, you had this, the doll set up in what yes. was still effectively under the empire, so yes. it, it was unofficial in that respect, which was an unofficial government, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. But even within that, yes. you're again a secret society, effectively, of IRB who saw themselves as being the real leader. Exactly. Uh, and, and again, that creates... Tremendous problems. It certainly creates a lot of problems latterly during the Civil War, uh, especially when the IRB, in effect, as a, as a result of Collins' backing, uh, backs the, the treaty and many members of the IRB were, were opposed to that. So you, it leads to splits within the IRB as well as, of course, splits within Sinn Féin, the Volunteers, the Dáil and the like. And just before I go back, you, you mentioned the IRB, just to finish the IRB, that split as a result of the treaty, I mean... One would have thought that, in general terms, the IRB would possibly be more militant than the average volunteer. So you, it, it would be very reasonable to surmise that that was entirely down to Collins' persona that so many of them went with it. I think there's no doubt. And, of course, the same is true with regard to many volunteers and members of general, and TDs yeah. and, and, and Sinn Féin. I mean, remember the IRB is, is in effect, the Fenian movement uh, the linear descendant of the original Fenians back in the 1850s and the 1860s. So it has tremendous kudos, tremendous prestige. Uh, 
it, it hadn't done a great deal for a number of years until Tom Clark in particular G's it up prior to the 1916 rising. And then Collins, in effect, takes over the mantle. OK, and we're back to what War of Independence starts. This is going parallel to Collins performing his function as Minister for Finance. Quite obviously, there's huge overlap there. He was described subsequently, I think, in the debates controversy as the man who won the war. Was he the leader of the War of Independence, de facto? Yeah. Certainly, I mean, that quote came from Arthur Griffith, yeah. and, and the general perception was that he was the single most important uh, figure within, the, uh, within the, the volunteers. I don't think Griffith, in making that comment, meant to imply that nobody else did anything, ah, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Uh, certainly, Cahill Brewer, who was Minister for Defence, took that uh, compliment very personally. He felt it was directed towards him, uh, because technically, under the way that the door saw itself, the army was supposed to be subordinate to the door, if it, during the course of the conflict, swore an oath of allegiance to the Doyle. Uh, I remember also, of course, that the chief of staff of the volunteers is Richard Mulcahy, uh, somebody who didn't have a particularly high profile uh, at this time, but who, of course, subsequently was, went on to have a long political career uh, with Commonwealth and, and Finnegan. Whose daughter, Elizabeth, is still alive at the age of 101. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, I mean, Mulcahy was, was regarded as one of the extreme militants uh, at this point. Interestingly, during the treaty debates, Cahill Brewer, in effect, singles out Richard Mulcahy on the, on the other side and saying, basically, he's the one man for whom I have the utmost respect uh, right. on the other side, which is, of course, a little ironic when one considers that Mulcahy was especially associated with the policy of execution and, and his name is, is still real mud yeah. uh, amongst those who, who subscribe to and, that. And view. the nature of the war, Gabriel, like, OK, Director of Intelligence, in any scenario, that would be extremely important. But am I correct that a large extent, particularly I'd say in Munster, the actual operations, th- those operations that were taken against the British Army, ambushes, whatever, uh, that kind of thing, were organised locally. And therefore, would that in turn have elevated further the role of Director of Intelligence over the national organisation? Mm, I agree with the first part, but not the second right, right, part. Right. Uh, I mean, one should remember that there are a number of outstanding figures operating here in Cork. And obviously, in the Intelligence Department, Florio Donahan. Dunhu, who was the intelligence officer, the leading intelligence officer for Cork Number One Brigade, and, and he, of course, had a direct line into Victoria Barracks because his future wife, uh, Josephine, was a secretary there. As far as Collins's role, it's more at the national level, and of course, remember that in his bailiwick, as it were, you have the, both the Dublin Metropolitan Police with its G Division, which is the political segment. You have the headquarters of the RIC uh, and its special branch, and that has. Uh, its reach uh, nationally. And you also have the headquarters of the army uh, in Park Days. So uh, he was able to obtain a, a level of intelligence that perhaps was beyond and at a higher level than, than that which was directly relevant to the Cork number one, two or three brigades. Uh, but uh, there's no great evidence of any great tension uh, between the national and the local level. Collins passed on as it were relevant oh, yeah, information yeah, yeah. to them. And, and to the extent to which information gathered locally here in Cork could have a national bearing, uh, and bearing in mind the difficulty of, of carrying documents and the like. The, yeah, the I, I, I kind of meant more that because the actual physical element of it, the attacks and all, were yeah. organised locally, therefore at a national level that wasn't as central as it might otherwise have been, and, and therefore it, it, Collins no, I, mean, I, I take your point in that sense that, that as it were, the, at the ground-level operations... These are very much the, the decisions of, of brigade commanders uh, and then local commanders further down the chain of command. Uh, at the same time, even such a thing as, for example, weapons purchases, which was intended to be uh, a very significant part of Collins' role as Minister for Finance to, to sanction those. Uh, to the extent to which this was possible, and of course it was always difficult to arrange gun running given that the British had control of the coasts, uh, Collins sought to use his knowledge of the active units, uh, and, and in effect to reward them uh, with resources such as those. Um, so, I mean, yes, it, it, any guerrilla struggle, any really successful guerrilla struggle, really has to be bottom-up. Uh, and, and Collins, to his credit, never really sought to to stop uh, the local commanders, especially people like Florio Donoghue, from using their local knowledge uh, to, to help the direction of operations. But again, the high level of intelligence, especially directed towards him, because, yeah. uh, of course, 
he became very rapidly the, the British enemy number one, uh, meant that he was always one step ahead of the opposition. Now, one of the other things, again, when things became bitter after the treaty that was hurled at him, some suggested that he had never uh, physically taken part in the War of Independence. Of course, apart from anything else, that completely ignores the fact that he had such a price on his head that if yep. the man was caught, he'd have been yes. tortured and subjected to a horrible death yes. irrespective of what he did. But what, did he engage in any operations no, 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 that we know That's my knowledge, but if you have a general doing a private job in a war, yeah. then the general isn't doing his job. Exactly. I mean, that's, it's, it's as simple as that. There's, there's, what benefit would it have been to the Republican movement if they had one of their outstanding individuals getting themselves killed in, in a gun battle? The, the idea that Collins somehow had eluded danger, again, have a look at his role in, in prison breaks, where he personally is present and... and in De Valera's case, is the person who breaks the key in the lock that De Valera uh, ultimately rescues. Uh, and of course, remember, he'd also been front and centre in 1916. He'd been in the GPO. Uh, he'd been part. Uh, he'd faced fire and fury during that, that point. So the idea that somehow, in terms of his personal courage or his integrity, that it was lacking... Uh, you try walking and cycling around Dublin when there's a price on your head for two and a half years. But, I mean, he, he made the contribution... Uh, the best contribution to uh, the, the volunteer movement by not getting involved yeah. in operations, but by directing them. Okay, and then, as we know, the, there's, the, there's the truce, there's negotiations, and suddenly he's the one who's sent to London. Dev maintains he's better off staying there, and we could go on forever talking about that controversy. Yeah. However, um, when he was in those negotiations, um, Gabriel, did his knowledge of the state of armory and the state of preparedness among the volunteers feed at all into swaying him towards realising, you know, if we have to go back to war, it's the very, very last option? I, I doubt it. Uh, my own view is that he, he took the position after weeks and months of talking face-to-face -face with Lloyd George, with Churchill, with Birkenhead uh, and the like, that the British had gone as far as they could go uh, in terms of, of the concessions. He and everybody else realised that simply getting a republic with no ties to Britain uh, was not on the cards. Uh, and de Valera recognised that also, which is the reason why he comes up with the, the external association formula. Uh, he knows, as well as everybody else, that, of course, it wasn't an easy thing for the British to go back to war uh, because the, the demands of an Irish campaign had been so great before then that it had, it had led to the British having to strip units that would otherwise have gone to parts of the empire. It led to the, the idea that some reservists might have to be called up. So Collins knew that the, the, the British threatening war the, it may be true or it may not be true. Uh, but he recognised, and I think in the final analysis, his main reason for going to war is not ultimately the threat of going back to war. It, it's, it's, it's more that if you do go back to war, you're not going to beat the British. I mean, you're not going to be able to have a, a conventional victory a la the Allies you're over going Germany. You're going to be back here in six months or exactly, a year. And you're going to have exactly the same decisions to make, exactly the same compromises, as it were, to, to consider. So better make the, the call now rather than inflict further damage on, on both countries, uh, as it were, uh, and, and to lose more capable individuals whose services you would need whenever you got that independence. The pointlessness of well, it, uh, 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 Of a renewed conflict. Yeah, yeah. There is, of course, on, I think it was on the actual night they signed, the famous comment, um, I've just signed my actual debt warrant. Yep. That, apart from being prophetic, um, he obviously knew, even in the act of signing yep. and everything, somewhere he sensed that there was, going to be con there was going to be violent conflict of some sort. I mean, remember that just before the, 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 the day or two leading up to the signing, the, the delegates had been back in Dublin. And they'd been able to, to get a, a flavour of opinion. And people like Cahill Brewer and Austin Stack have made it abundantly clear that the text as they had it at the previous weekend, which was slightly different, but not hugely different from the ultimate text that's, that's finally signed, that they weren't going to accept it. Um, and of course, given what had happened over the previous well, five years at that point, since 1916, and certainly since uh, 1919, uh, he must have known 
<laughs> given that he'd been so closely involved in the violent campaign, uh, that there was a danger this, uh, that, that this would rebound on him. Birkenhead, who had been the, the, the man who'd said that he'd signed his political death warrant, uh, as it turns out, that wasn't really the case. Uh, Birkenhead, uh, who, who was regarded almost as sort of the, on the extreme wing of the unionist cause, he'd been heavily involved in, in the, the Home Rule campaign, Galloper Smith, as he'd been, as he'd been called. Uh, the British cabinet are able to get the treaty through the Westminster with, with very little difficulty. Uh, there, there was a small revolt from the extreme diehard wing of the Conservative Party who had been viewed as being Birkenhead's natural constituency. But he continues to have a political career. What does for him ultimately is his alcoholism. So just because the two of them said that they had yeah. uh, sort of death warrants didn't necessarily mean that they were that prescient. Yeah, so. yeah. He comes back, there's the obvious split. Um, and one impression I get, and you, you, you can tell me whether I'm totally off the mark here, um, kind of uh, spiritually, if you want to put it that way, or culturally, temperamentally, would he have been closer to those who ended up on the other side of the, 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 the split, those who were on the anti Well, I mean, side. what I would say is I think that they were all pretty close <laughs> to right. each, each other. And there are some people who, who go anti-treaty who might, you might have thought would have gone pro-treaty and, and vice versa. And some of the reasons and rationales given for the taking of one position or another didn't necessarily stand up hugely to scrutiny 100 years later when we don't have to, as we're considered, the consequences of, of taking those positions. What I would say is that, that Collins was viewed as, as the ultimate hard man, uh, which is one of the reasons why, of course, the British... But by his own crowd? Well, well, was one, well, by the British, one, one of the reasons why the British were keen to have him uh, involved. And it's one, of course, one of the reasons why I think de Valera is keen to have him there, because I don't think de Valera thought that he would cave into British pressure. Uh, and I, I, I'm not sure that even the term caving in is, is perhaps the, the best way of expressing it. But yes, I mean, give, given his his background, I mean, he comes from the heart of Fenian and West Cork. I mean, his his parents are buried, buried next to, I think, Donovan Ross's parents, right. or his grandparents are. He's his, his from the heart of Fenian territory. He's, he's absolutely immersed in Fenian territory, Fenian activities, if you like, in the IRB in London, and, and had been ever since. Um, so... The fact that he took the treaty, I think, did the treaty side came as a big surprise to Manny. Whether it was a welcome surprise or, or, or an unwelcome surprise uh, was a, was another thing. But uh, yes, I think that he was close to Manny on the, the anti-treaty side. But of course, the same was true for practically everybody who yeah. took both sides. Yeah. I mean, after all, they had been fighting a common enemy. Yeah. Uh, Manny of them had been out in 1916, had been in had had been on the run together uh, for most of 1919 to 1921. Uh, and of course, that sense of a common bond exacerbates all the, the, the feelings that arise Absolutely. when this political division arises. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Two incidents just want to touch on that actually effectively led up to the, the, the beginning of the Civil War, the conflict. One, and I, not too long ago I interviewed uh, Ronan McCreevy, who's yeah. written the book about the assassination of Sir Henry. As it, as it happened, I chaired the session with him oh, in the Civil War right. conflict this morning. Very, so. very good. Um, is there evidence there that Collins ordered that? Well, that, that's... Sorry, that, I, should, I should just, just, sorry, just to remind listeners, uh, Sir Henry Wilson, highly controversial figure, he'd been chief of the British Armed Forces, very close to what was evolving into the Unionist government in the North. Some either fairly or unfairly blamed him for some of the pogroms that were being carried out against Catholics in the North. He was effectively a hate figure to a large extent down here. And then he was shot dead in, in June um, 1922, uh, the British initially blamed the garrison of anti-treaty people who were in the four courts. Um, ironically, though, there's a lot, has been for the last hundred years, a lot of speculation that it was Collins who ordered. Well, uh, I think Roland's answer this morning was read my book. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but, I mean, yes. Uh, I mean, both parts of what you said are, are correct in the sense that the British immediately looked to this, as it were, as, as an excuse to put pressure on 
Collins specifically and the provisional government more generally to do something about uh, the forecourts garrison and specifically to, to get them out uh, by hook or by crook. Um, but also I think that ultimately it is the, the, the original order, which of course uh, went back some time, yeah. uh, was it did emanate from Collins. Now one should remember, of course, that other figures uh, within the Republican movement, people like Cottle Brewer, had come up with the idea of assassinating the entire British cabinet. Uh, and there had been assassination attempts previously, for example, on Lord French in late 1919. So the idea of targeting significant political figures uh, and trying to get rid of them was, was, wasn't invented in, in the summer of 1922. Um, and again, it's you could argue going back to the things like the Phoenix Park killings in, in the 1880s. Uh, and, and even further back, there is a there is a pedigree there. Yeah, and uh, I, I actually, yeah, because I spoke to Ron about that, and, and, and that issue came up about Collins might have issued the, the are given the initial oh, order to yeah. do so, but that would have been at the height of when the war was on. And yet, bang, it actually happens. And, and you have all was, sorts of intermediaries. Yeah, and between it the, the most sensitive order. time imaginable. He's yes. been put under pressure by the British, yeah. and suddenly this happens. What are they going to say? But you have to move. Yeah. That brings us to. But I, I think the key point there was that the British said, if you don't yeah, get rid of the garrison, we will. Yeah. And that, that was the crucial point. I mean, I think Collins's entire strategy after the treaty is based, as it were, on tactical flexibility, but strategically he, he has two aims in mind. Uh, strategically, A, he believes that you have to get the British army out. There is the absolute bedrock position. Anything that contributes them to getting them out quickly is good and he'll back anything that contributes to them either slowing down or staying uh, is a bad thing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why he was opposed to the Four Courts Garrison. I mean, the Four Courts Garrison don't do very much when they, they take over, but what they do do is give the British an excuse to hasten slowly on, on their pullouts. Secondly, he, in terms of his strategic concerns, he's building up the National Army as quickly as he possibly can. I don't think he's looking for civil war, but he clearly knows that, that this is a possibility. So everything, everything that, can that can hasten the British army withdrawal and speed up the, the formation of the National Army, he's, he's trying to do both at the same time. Politically speaking, he's also trying to deliver on his, as it were, stepping stone approach by trying to get as Republican a constitution as he possibly can. He was head of the government at that stage. Yeah, he's head yeah. of the provisional government. Uh, so a committee is established. Nominally, he's a member, but he isn't able to attend most of, of the meetings. But the directions that he gives towards the committee is, in effect, to make a re as republican a constitution as possible that still is technically consistent with, with the treaty and, and dominion status. And, and he can't, they come up with a clever approach. In effect, the, the treaty says you have to have the same constitutional status as Canada. But under Dominion status, Canada could draw up its own constitution. Right. So what Collins does is say, he gives the British, in effect, what is de facto a, a Republican constitution. And the British say, well, this is nothing like the Canadian constitution. And Collins says, yes, but the Canadians could give themselves this constitution if they chose. So in effect, we have Canadian status. We're not going to mimic uh, the Canadian constitution, we're going to use the freedom that you have given us in Dominion status, the freedom to draw up our own constitution and do it in any way that we like. Uh, the British basically said, good try, uh, but no, we're, we're, we are, we're going to insist that the provisions of the treaty are kept in there. But so that's the strategic, as it were, militarily, get the British out as quickly as possible and, and try and get up a formidable national army as as quickly as possible. By the way, getting rid of the British, of course, would prevent the anti-treatyites attacking the British, which is something he knew that they were planning. And politically speaking, to try and get as Republican a constitution as possible, as quickly as possible, through the British, in effect, to deliver on the stepping stone approach. But, to, but beyond that, tactically, he, he would do anything to, in effect, meet those objectives. He, he would talk to anybody. He refused to shut down any uh, avenue of, uh, of uh, opportunity, e even where he didn't like us. For example, in dealing with the North, I mean, he had zero sympathy with the uh, Belfast administration, zero sympathy for the idea of partition, but he was willing to deal with James Craig, the Craig Collins Pact in, in the early months of 1922, simply because uh, this helped to, to demonstrate his bona fides with the British. Again, he, it gave him time, uh, and perhaps also he was hoping that ultimately it might persuade the Unionists uh, to vote in favour of, uh, of staying within the free state, which because, of course, that's what the treaty provided for. 
Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. But simultaneously, he's also dealing with anti-treaty iron and organizing a, a campaign against the northern states. So it's this combination of tactical flexibility uh, and at the same time, and, and making whatever decisions are needed on the spot. At the same time, he knows very definitely uh, the directions he, he wants to go. You wonder when he slept. It's, it's yes, absolutely, absolutely. The one thing that really strikes me, Gabriel, quite obviously... He hadn't a clue that he was moving towards the end of his life, notwithstanding his, his, uh, his suggestion six months previously when he signed the treaty. But 28th of June in the morning, and he orders the shelling of the forecourts. It has always struck me that, and you very eloquently showed all that was going on in so many different aspects of what he was trying to do with the country. But to do that against the people that, since the whole thing broke out, he had fought beside. It, it must have been for somebody like him uh, a heart-wrenching moment. Of course, of course. I, th- I think it was a heart-wrenching moment for everybody on the pro-treaty side. Uh, they they had done their best to try and avoid uh, an outbreak of violence. And in fairness, many of those, even as were the militarists on the anti-treaty side, had avoid trying to uh, start or even consider sort of a direct shooting match with their former allies. Their main concentration was, to the extent to which they were planning any sort of shooting was against the British. Uh, the, the hope was that if you engaged, the, the anti-treaty hope was that if you somehow could draw the British out into a firefight, then that might be an opportunity to reunite uh, the two sides in, in pursuit of the common enemy. Uh, but again, to come back to the point I made earlier, the, the, the British tell Collins, uh, yeah. if you don't do this, we will. And I think Collins realised that, that if the British re-engaged uh, the anti-treaty forces, it, it might not just slow down or stop the pullout. It might lead to the British redeploying troops across the country where they, they'd previously evacuated, such as Cork. Uh, so above or above everything else, Collins wanted to make sure that the British military got out. And if that meant that he had to do something that the British were indicated, indicated they were willing to do themselves, uh, then, then that... And I think he also made the call at that point the National Army was sufficiently strong to be able to, yeah. to take on the fight, even though, of course, it was a close-run thing. I mean, so the, the, many people still believe that the anti-treaty forces uh, were, were stronger. And, of course, remember that the anti-treaty forces had scored a huge logistics su- success uh, shortly before, a few weeks before, when they'd seized a huge cache of weapons from a British ship that was evacuating its weapons from Cork uh, and, and the Upner, uh, and these weapons had been distributed uh, amongst the, the Cork and Munster IRA. So the, the IRA, and again, this was one factor that, that Collins had to take into account, is that he's now dealing with an IRA that was better armed than it had been during the War of Independence, when they'd, of course, give the British a hard time. Uh, and, and he knew that Munster was always going to be the difficult nut to, try, to crack. And despite that, similar to, and I suppose this is just a real indication of his character, after GPO, he realised there's a proper way to fight a war. He goes about it, and he goes about it in, in, in a strategic and a committed way. Once there's ceasefire, he addresses the treaty, he addresses it strategically, committed, and he decides, you know, he goes full on. Yeah. Once this broke out, he goes full on and he prosecutes the war as he feels he has to. I, I think the idea was to try and win it as quickly as you possibly could. And they did it. And effectively, in terms of any threat of the anti-treatyites taking over the country, he nearly had that done. It was. And, 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 and certainly the, the battle for Dublin is completed really within a week. 
Um, and then you have, as it were, the conventional phase of the campaign where you have pretty large-scale forces being deployed, not sort of not quite in, in full-scale battle, but in, as it were, conventional military formations. You have a series of amphibious landings along the coast, uh, so, which helps the, the government forces take important places because they didn't want to cr- travel by land. So places like Tralee, uh, Limerick, and, of course, uh, here in Cork, uh, there was a landing at Passage and you had uh, a three-day battle up the passage, Rochestown, Douglas, Douglas Road. Um, and it's in the context of that battle, of course, that Collins makes his fatal final visit to Cork. Yeah. Was he still at that stage trying to send out feelers to some of the people on the other side? I, I think so. Uh, but, and, and of course, remember that there were, there were others on the anti-treaty side who, who recognised that the battle was, to all intents and purposes, already lost and, and would not have been as a unamenable to, to that type of approach. But of course, you also have on both sides, others who are saying on the pro-treaty side, we have them on the run, break them now. And, and if you call a halt now, then you're just leaving them with their weapons intact in situ when we're going to have to face a, a similar problem uh, six months down the line, similar as it were to what Collins himself had, had uh, argued over the treaty. And likewise, on the anti-treaty side, there are others who are saying, we, we cannot surrender, we will not surrender. It would be a betrayal of those who've died in the civil war, as well as of all those who died during the War of Independence and the 1916 Rising. So I, I think Collins was amenable to a ceasefire. It didn't necessarily mean that he was he was going to sacrifice everything to, to get one. Um, but he had been low to see the fighting break out. Uh, he had been commander-in-chief, he had taken the final decision. But I, I, I think he, he thought that if you could deliver as sort of sh- as swift a victory as you possibly could, uh, then every, everybody better, even the losers, would benefit from, as it were, a, a swift, decisive campaign, as opposed to the descent into Hades that, that ultimately took place over the winter of 22-23. And as you said, he made that fateful final journey at Cork. He was down in Clannacilty. He's coming back to uh, Bail na Um did the anti-treatyites who assembled there, did they know Collins was in that convoy? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, there, there wasn't a doubt. I mean, there, there was no great secret about the fact that Collins had come to Cork. I mean, he was, he was openly staying in the Imperial Hotel and there was plenty of anti-treaty people still living in Cork. So the intelligence that he was operating in Cork and, and the fact that he departed from Cork that morning wasn't exactly a secret. Uh, the, the, the convoy had passed through Bail na earlier in the day uh, and that's one of the reasons, of course, why the ambush itself is set. The, the many of the other roads back to Cork had been trenched or with trees blown across them. So there, there weren't that many ways of getting back uh, to Cork. Uh, the problem for those who set the ambush was that they couldn't sort of tell exactly what route he was coming from. And, and ultimately, when he does come back, they believed that he'd somehow he'd, he'd given them the slip. So that the ambushers were became the ambushed. They were the they were in the process of dismantling the ambush and dismantling the disconnecting the mine. So if anything, they were the ones who were in the vulnerable position. You're having a, an armed convoy, uh, an armored car, the sleeve Naman. You have uh, a truck full of troops, um, and and if anything, they're they're dealing with the the people who are doing the original ambush who are now out in the open or who'd abandoned their prepared positions. So from that point of view, the the ambush of Michael Collins is, as it were, an equal fight both ways. Both sides, I think, are trying to disengage uh, to, to not uh, lose face, but, but to make sure that they don't lose anybody in that ambush. And there are some suggestions that a lot of them in Collins' party had taken a lot of drink by that time. Well, I, I think that there's no question that they had been in, in, in the pub. Uh, I mean, they're sort of uh, been, uh, whether that, that meant that they were drunk uh, and incapable of firing their weapons, I think I, I personally doubt. Uh, and certainly, from what I understand, from anybody who's been in combat, it doesn't matter how much drink that you've got, it's as soon as the first firing, you yeah. sober up very, very quickly. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and the fact is that nobody else, other than Collins, is sort of suffers any serious very injury, which, which would suggest that they were perfectly capable of, of conducting themselves. And did I see somewhere that? Uh, when word came through, some of the anti-treatyites, I think including the likes of Tom Barry, were detained and they knelt down and said a prayer for That's, that's one testimony, but I've also heard uh, in other testimonies where there was cheering going really? on amongst Republican prisoners. So, uh, it's hard, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you don't, I mean, uh, 
there were opposing sides in the war. This was the head of, of the opposition. If de Valera had been killed during the civil war, uh, it's quite likely that his death would have been cheered by yeah. uh, pro-government forces. Two, two aspects then to his death and what you might call his immediate legacy. In terms of the character of the civil war, it was in the autumn of that year that it got really vicious. Yes. The executions coming in, yep. lots of reprisals and the whole thing. Um, two elements to it. One, Collins there no longer. He wasn't there to prosecute the war, so perhaps it took on a different character. Secondly, was there a lot of anger or, or fear on the pro-treaty side as a result of the killing of Collins that prompted them to turn a bit more vicious? Well, yes, in terms of the latter question, I think they were quite fearful of what, of what the future would hold, given that their, their leader, as you, as you mentioned earlier on, is head and shoulders above everybody else uh, on their side. Certainly people like Cosgrave, who took over as, as head of the provisional government, uh, really is, is a marginal figure, politically speaking, and doesn't have the kudos, and certainly doesn't have the IRB connections and many of the other connections that, of course, Collins had nurtured uh, during his time in the struggle. So, yes, there is a fear that... However much the war may appear to have been won at that point, it hadn't been won. And there was a fear that the tide could turn uh, back again. And I think that helps to explain, to answer that, I suppose, the first part of the question, I think that helps to explain why it was that certainly the pro-treaty side uh, start to adopt things like uh, military tribunals, death sentences uh, and reprisals, uh, uh, because... They felt that they, they had to show that they, they possessed the will to prosecute the war to the maximum possible extent uh, in a way that Collins, of course, clearly, everyone who understood that Collins sort of had, had the will to, to conduct a war. But Cosgrave, who'd been uh, basically in charge of local government during the door... He had been in GPO 1916. He had, yes, yeah, and, yeah. And, and he had been out, but he was mainly seen as somebody on the civilian side. Richard Mulcahy, of course, had mm. extensive experience of of the IRA campaign as as the chief of staff and and he's making a number of decisions but Mulcahy doesn't by any manner of means see eye to eye with everybody within the the pro treaty government and and all and, and neither do they necessarily all would he have been considered closer to Collins he would he would have been considered and and he would have been considered to be somebody who is a a militarist who wouldn't necessarily accept the subordination of the army to civil control which is what people like Kevin O'Higgins and 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 Cosway themselves wanted and and ultimately of course uh, years later, during the, the army mutiny, there is a falling out and Mulcahy is one of, of, of the casualties of that. So he, we, there's a tendency to, as it were, look at both sides and regard them as almost homogenous and agreed on what they were fighting for and uh, on the same page temperamentally and everything. But certainly on, on both sides, uh, it's pretty widely known that de Valera didn't by any manner of means see eye to eye with the leaders of, of the anti-treaty campaign and they didn't all by any manner of means have tremendous respect for him. But on the pro-treaty side as well, even within that operational and that small operational, on, there, there were, were very, very significant tensions. They didn't really manifest themselves at this point, but later on during the army mutiny, they did. The other thing then is, um, as we know, the, the provisional government, it, it, um, it evolved into the, the, the first government until 1932, led by W.T. Cosgrave. That, even though it was Cumann Gael, that evolved into Fine Gael, which had much the same character, I'd say, as yep. Cumann Gael, and De Valera, quite obviously the opposite in Fianna Fáil. Um, it's all speculation once he's dead, but <laughs> what we know of Collins, it wouldn't suggest to me that he would have been what you might call a typical member of what evolved into Cumann Gael and Fine Gael. True, true. Albeit, of course, remember that the, that, that itself had a composite character. Yeah. It was very heavily influenced by, as it were, sort of middle class elements and, as it were, property yeah, elements. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but you, you also had a sort of a, a significant residue from the the, the, the pro treaty side, who from lower down the, the social class. It, it's impossible to know. I mean, one thing that one should remember is that Collins had indicated by is agreeing to the pact election that he was open to contact uh, with the other side politically speaking so it's impossible to I mean there are, there are theses that what Collins might have done is, is to become some sort of generalissimo character that he would if, had he lived and had he been been victorious in, in the civil war he could have emerged into to a type of militarist that, that was common throughout Europe not just People like Franco, Franco, not just people like Franco or, or even Mussolini, uh, but uh, 
the one that I think perhaps is interesting is Pilsudski in, in Poland. Uh, Poland had got its independence uh, as a result of a, a campaign uh, and also diplomatic support. Pilsudski was clearly the, the leading figure in that campaign. He, he had taken some part in the politics uh, of post-independence Poland, but then retires. But then he sees it going in the wrong direction and, in effect, launches a military coup. But he never becomes military dictator. In effect, he's, he sort of takes a sit back seat uh, and lets it be known, however, that if things go wrong again, he might be willing to step in. Now, that's that's a possibility that that, Con, that, that Collins, without going down the fascist route or even the communist route, of course, uh, might have had such kudos uh, in terms of, of had he lived that that he may have been tempted to to go into that role, given that he had this. Two feet, such one foot in the military and one foot in the... It would strike me that such a scenario wouldn't have been healthy in terms of democracy. Probably, almost certainly not, no. But uh, in times of trouble, of course, uh, the, the plea always goes out for somebody strong to, to save the situation. And, and, and it's and possible as, that that could have developed. And as somebody else pointed out to me, uh, from that time, kind of small countries that did get independence involved, Ireland was the only one that ultimately did maintain its exactly, democracy. Exactly, and I suppose that Ireland was lucky in the sense that with relatively small-scale problems, such as the blue shirt period in the early 1930s, it doesn't face the type of either domestic ideological problems or the external threats that, that countries in Central and Eastern Europe do. So that's Collins, that's him. As we said, there, books have been speculated on how he may have shaped the country. Yeah. Personally, Apart from that, the scenario, the generalismo scenario is interesting. Apart from that, I, I would find it difficult to think how it could have been much of a different country. All of those people I, I, all I, drawn I, I, from the same. I mean, uh, ideologically speaking, uh, they were to a large extent cut from the same cloth. I yeah. mean, what once James Connolly, who's the absolute clear leader of, of not just the left wing in Irish politics, but sort of the Marxist left wing. Um, the, the, what is left of the Labour movement is much more of a sort of reformist, incrementalist character. But even on that, Gabriel, just briefly, that James Colley, what always struck me about him, a great man, great admiration for him, would he ever have got elected in the Ireland that was there with the church and everything? Well, I mean, he, he possibly could. I mean, again, we're, we're, we're trying speculate. to speculate yeah, where yeah, he would yeah. have been. Whether, whether he would have... Whether he would have just been a little bit like, I suppose, sort of people for profit and solidarity in, in the current, or as it were, yeah. speaking from from the margins, yeah, yeah. Uh, we just we just don't know. Don't know of course, uh, yeah. I mean, in one sense, the best contribution that Connolly makes to the left wing is is to get himself killed uh, in 1916 because he's then the martyr, yeah. and and he sets the standard for everybody who's to come. And, and to a large extent, as we know that everybody who's come uh, subsequently in, in left-wing politics in Ireland has really always operated under his shadow. Finally, and people have speculated as well, and I think that there's some comments made, Eamon de Valera um, and his own uh, accommodation with how he behaved in there, uh, he, he was recorded making comments about regrets and about Collins, and there was, issue, there was suggestions that his wife was particularly close to Collins, not well, in any... Romantic sense. No, I mean, what's really interesting about De Valera's attempt to police his historical reputation, yeah. uh, and of course he does have an authorised biography published, uh, is that he's infinitely more concerned about the relatively short period that is out of power, which is precisely the period in the immediate aftermath of the ratification of the treaty uh, and thereafter, than he is with his reputation for the very long period that he's in power after 1932, uh, or, or even prior to... The, the treaty vote between 1919 to 1921, which to me indicates that he was aware that some of the things that he said, obviously the, the, the famous notorious speech about wading through, uh, through the blood of a fellow Irishman, uh, that was, was, was really a, a, a blot on his, his record. And of course, the, the idea that he sold out the Republic in advocating external association... When it came to that part of his reputation, certainly in terms of his official biography, he was exceptionally keen to get his version of events down. And, of course, to a certain extent, Dorothy McArdle, in writing The Irish Republic in 1930, the mid-1936-37, had already put down, as it were, uh, on record, the De Valera version of those events. Yeah, and no more than you said about James Connolly in terms of uh, getting himself killed... It's it's difficult to escape 
that in terms of uh, Michael Collins and his legacy, had he lived like like all of us, <laughs> he'd have been tarnished in some of way. Couldn't he? And, and, and therefore, we, we, we view him in a particular yeah. light. Yeah, of course, from if those who take a, an anti-treaty stance to the present day, he, he as well his, his legacy was was compromised. But I think certainly here in Cork, even those who would take a Republican point of view and sort of would argue historically that they would be sympathetic with anti-treaty, I think so great was his contribution to to the independence struggle uh, that there's there's a willingness to, as it were, overlook or at least diminish uh, the sense of, of wrongdoing, as it were, in, in signing and standing over the treaty. As a student of Collins, the uh, Neil Jordan movie 1995, did that bring him to a new generation. Now, there's a lot, yes. there's been various criticisms in yeah. terms of historical accuracy, yeah. but you have to make allowances for well, it. Well, I, I mean, if you think about it, if you have a look at that period, there aren't that many feature films that have been made about that period. There's, interestingly, there was one made in the 1930s, I think it's Beloved Enemy, uh, which is available on, it's either Netflix or one of the streaming channels. And, and, and I took the opportunity to have a look at it, and there's one character there which is Reardon, but which is clearly based on, on Michael Collins. Uh, and it, it's sort of, it's actually not a million miles away from, as it were, the real Collins. It's probably as close to the real Collins as, as the Liam Neeson de- depiction uh, in, in the Neil Jordan film. Uh, so I suppose in that sense, you can say one of the ultimate tributes to Collins' legacy is that in a, a revolutionary struggle that hasn't generated that many films, he's been depicted twice uh, and has had his own, his own biopic. I, I thought that the film when it was first released was superb, and I still think it's very strong. I personally think that when the film The Wind That Shakes the Barley came out, uh, that really sort of is head and shoulders above any other depiction yeah. of the period as a whole. And very wisely, it, it avoided 99% in naming names or using real historical figures, even though, of course, Collins and... It, it and also, it also well. inserted a certain kind of um, socialist ideology it, it, that you'd and, wonder and, whether and, that was... And, and, and that was probably... A little overstated, as, as Ken Loach, I think, would admit. Yeah. Because uh, I think he and Donald, my colleague here, Donald O'Driscoll, were very keen to emphasise that theirs was a version, a story yeah, no, from right. the Irish Revolution rather than the story of the Irish Revolution. Finally, um, Natch, as you said, number of biographies. Tim Pat Coogan's obviously one that stands out. Frank O'Connor's book, I have to say, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. I enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, Frank O'Connor, again, ideologically speaking, in terms of the treaty, yeah. Uh, Frank, o- Frank O'Connor was, was a superb writer. I mean, he really was. I mean, he was a great penman, and, and he knew how to depict... I, I don't think he necessarily knew Collins himself. I mean, Frank O'Connor, he was, was a, very much a, one of the rank and file in, in the local struggle. Uh, but it, as well, again, if you're looking for tributes to, to Collins' memory, somebody who takes the anti-treaty side, yeah. uh, 10 years later, writes a, a thoroughgoing and very admiring uh, biography. I think that there's also, even at that point, there was... Uh, an attempt made to try and depict Collins as, as almost the the opposite, the the, the polar opposite of, of De Valera. That book is written after De Valera has been in power for several years and he's disappointing those who, yeah. who hoped that Fianna Fáil would be as radical in government as it seemed to promise in, in opposition. And he wasn't the only one. Sean O'Fuelon had written a very glowing biography of De Valera before Fianna Fáil going to power and he produces a biography about the same time as O'Connor's one of Collins, and that's a very, very different uh, take on De Valera. So. It is fascinating, and it will continue to fascinate, I've no doubt, for another 100 years. I think so. I think Gabriel, so. thank you very much for talking to us today. No problem. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening, and we'll talk again soon. Today's podcast is in partnership with Cork County Council. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.